Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing extremely well. Today, another really exciting interview and a really relevant interview as well. We've managed to get ourselves a real live AH-64 Apache pilot and we've got Rex. Say hello, Rex. Yeah. Cheers to everybody on the Grim Reapers. No, How's everybody doing? Yeah, wonderful, thank you. Now, the reason this is so relevant at the moment is because just a couple of weeks ago, we've had announced to us that we're getting a high-fidelity Apache in DCS, which is great. So the first thing we've had to do is reach out, find pilots, and off we go. So first of all, Rex, um, I'm going to just read out your synopsis so people know sure, a bit about you, and then we'll, we'll carry on. So, born and raised in Texas, graduated from flight school in 1990, flew UH-1 Hueys in primary and instruments, then tracked Scouts OH-58AC, then onto AH-1 Cobra Mod S, only about 80 hours. Then went through the AH-64A model transition and then onto the AH-64 armament officer course. 2011 went through the AH-64D longboat transition and I'm a graduate of the US Army Safety Center and re retired as a CW4 battalion safety officer. My combat time in northern Afghanistan, OEF-4, 2003-2004, flew mostly night QRF for troops in contact and some direct operation missions in support of ground forces. Escorted uh, medivac and air assault missions as well, retired in 2016. Brilliant. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Really good, that is. Out of interest, um, we've actually got a, another Apache pilot that flies with us uh, in Green Reapers. Now, he didn't want to come on. Um, some people just don't like, you know, being public, and that's absolutely fine. So sure. so that's fine. Uh, interestingly, he's flown almost identical to you, starting on Hueys, I believe he was, then AH-1, and then AH-64. So uh, is that the natural progression of... of you know, I just kind of lucked out. Um, there are a lot of guys that I knew that were scout pilots that wound up going uh, going guns. And so it just happened to be, you know, the way my unit was doing everything. They were getting rid of the Cobras at the time. And I had a chance to still fly uh, the Cobra for about uh, eight months, nine months uh, before uh, we started uh, turning our Cobras in and, and then receiving our uh, Apaches. So it just kind of happened that way. Okay. Now, as you probably know, the questions that we ask are ones that we've allowed the uh, the valued viewers to ask. That means sometimes they're really good, sometimes they're really bad, and sometimes they're just downright <laughs> ugly. We'll just have to see how it goes. So, so we'll figure it out as we go. We're aware, obviously, there won't be some stuff you can talk about because, you know, for obvious reasons. Obvious reasons. Before we get cracking, anything from your end? Uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, I... I am and i think this is something that you and i have not even spoken about i did get permission to let you know because of relevance uh i am working with i'm part of the team with eagle dynamics yeah. and that they're working on the program how about that yeah That's cool. so uh i did have to sign an nda so i can't really <laughs> yeah, uh, <it> sucks. <laughs> yeah I, I can't really go into it but mm -hmm. i did get permission to uh from wags to uh let you know I'm part of the team. Oh, that's great. And that's really good to see when we talk about community. This is exactly what it is. We've got the ED guys. We've got you, the real guys. We've got us, the pretend guys. And we all kind of go around together. So that's great. Right. Well, that couldn't be more pertinent. Okay. There you go. Okay. We're going to crack on. Question one is okay. from our, our own Beanbag Ninja, Steve. I heard that Apache pilots learn to use their eyes independently to use a display over one eye is this true do you get to choose which eye has the display over it? are we talking about that little green thing that comes down that yeah, i never really so understood it's called an hdu or, or an hmd so uh, uh hdu is helmet display unit so it's a monocle on your right eye and it's only on your right eye and so you can flip it 
uh, away from your eye or have it on your on your eye. But uh, it's it's always uh, has the symbology. Uh, you you fly with it day or night because it does have all the symbology. At night, obviously, uh, obviously it's got the uh, the flare that you're flying off of. Um, but uh, no, it's always on your right eye, and you do kind of. Uh, I know it's crazy, but you do kind of learn to use your eyes independently, Any, uh, you know, so to speak, uh, right eye flying and then using your left eye to kind of look down inside the cockpit. Roger, interesting. I'm just looking on, I mean, this is from a game, it's not from real life, but but here it looks like a kind of a little uh, fighter aircraft green HUD that's kind of, that you can see, and this can see as airspeed is whatever that is, sync rate and a target and stuff like that, yeah? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, information on the HDU. Uh, the one thing that I've seen that, uh, um, and one thing that I have mentioned to ED about is that the the um, uh, games you always see are green. You know, that's 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 not age uh, sixty four world. That's night vision goggles. Whereas the Apache community, uh, it's all thermal. So you don't, it's not a green screen on your eye. Uh, right. So it's, it's all thermal. So what kind of, I mean, what does that look like? What can we expect to see? Is it, what does thermal look like? Like white for hot, black for yes, dark? Yeah. Abs- absolutely. And, and you can switch back and forth uh, flying, uh, white hot, black hot, whatever you want to fly. So if you're going out on a night mission uh, and, and you've got, obviously you've got the HDU on your eye and, and you've got, uh, uh, Penvis and Tad's working uh, on you. Uh, you're going to see, you know, like I said, that that thermal image. Um, which the advantage to that is you don't, you know, compared to NVGs, you don't need any illumination uh, outward source. So you on a zero lumen night, you're you're getting the same picture from a zero lumen night versus a hundred percent moon. It's it's it, the moon doesn't have any effect on thermal. Interesting. So this thing, this sounds like this 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 aircraft really designed to properly operate at night. Then with, with oh, yeah. without and, much loss of. I can tell you, Captain. Uh, probably my last five years flying the longbow, I would say eighty percent of my time was all at night. Right. And it makes sense because if you can see and they can't, bonus. Uh, absolutely. And uh, we got to a point where uh, back in the old days in the A model, we would go out and do check rides during the day and night. Uh, we got to a point where we did uh, all check rides at night uh, because the, the premise is if you can do it at night, you can certainly do it during the day. Right, absolutely. And and the last bit of that question was, do you get to choose which eye has it, or is it always going to be over the right? It's always going to be over the right eye. And if I can have a little... So this was uh, my helmet ah. uh, for the HDU. So as I put down uh, the visor, you can see where it's cut out yep. a little bit. Sorry to interrupt, Cap. The there's nothing side. to see on the stream. So that you can see that, which is where the HDU comes up. So that kind of gives you a little, uh, uh, you know, a little idea. So same way that. So that was my uh, day visor. This was my night visor. So um, this right here is where your NVGs are going to be. So flip downs or uh, you can do the HUD, the HDU the, the same way, and you can see the cutout there. Yeah. 
Awesome. So everything's on the right hand side. Awesome. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, right. Okay, thank you for that. Question two. I've heard stories of the piles of blades at Bastion, not sure what that means, from the helis worn out from the sand. Did you experience this yourself? Does the AH-64 tend to eat through them when flying in Afghanistan? Also was, brackets, I think this is also called glassing, this an issue for engine power or how you flew in the desert conditions? I've heard stories from the Brits that a Chinook was flying through a sandstorm using its front wheels to find the dunes. And that's from our ghost fox. Um, sure, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I can't speak to what the Chinook was doing with its wheels, uh, but I can tell you, um, before we deployed the, the leading edge of the blades, they had a special tape that they put, and they put three layers of it on, and that was specifically for the pitting of the blades. So as it's going around, all that sand and dust was eating the leading edges of the blades. And so that is absolutely true. And the glassing uh, uh, was a kind of a phenomenon where the sand is so fine over there. And the, obviously inside the, um, the engine cowling, uh, the temperatures get warm. So what it was doing is actually turning that sand to glass. Wow. And so there was instances of that actually happening. I never saw it per se. I did see the pitting of the blades, but uh, the glassing, so that did occur on some aircraft. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, yeah. very good. So I guess this is just the kind of thing they have to worry about in, in the desert. I, I wonder, I want to ask a question to a, a, an airplane tech now, whether they get any kind of similar problems with plane jet engines and stuff like that, but I guess that'll have to wait. And, you know, Cap, it was so interesting. You know, our, our crew chiefs and our ground crew were just, they were so amazing. And some of the things that they came up with, we had some uh, uh, air intakes on just some computer areas uh, on the aircraft and some vents. And we found that uh, they were asking their wives to bring uh, or to send uh, pantyhose over. Okay. Because they found out that they could cover those uh uh, fans and outlets um, with pantyhose, and that would help. You would still get the airflow, but it, it was so fine that it would help keep the the sand out. That's genius. You just it, oh yeah, I mean it was just amazing. Some of the things they came up with. Yeah, isn't it funny? You've got millions and millions and millions of pounds worth of technology, but it's just not really made per se for this part of the world. So you yeah. just find you find a way around it, don't you? It's a harsh environment. Okay, very good. Um, right, let's start with the inevitable questions. Did you ever get hit with a rocket or some bullets? And if you got hit, are are you having any kind of backup system for an engine or something like that? That's from Black Snow. Yeah, that's a great great question, Black Snow. Um, I was never hit with uh, an RPG. Uh, I had several of them shot at me. Um, most of the time, well, actually all of the times uh, that they initially shot, uh, we never knew. Uh, our ground, the guys that we were covering on the ground was telling us that they were shooting at us because um, we always kept our speed up. And uh, so, you know, an RPG is unguided. So, you know, it's trying to, uh, you know, lead an aircraft flying fairly fast. So they would always go off behind us. Uh, as far as the bullets, never had bullets in the aircraft. My wingman took about seven or eight 
and uh, uh, I had to follow him back to one of the pubs, uh, yeah, because he was shot up pretty good. So, and he started having a lot of systems fail on him and everything. So, yeah, it 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 happens. There's a, a program, kind of a documentary slash film, and forgive me, I think it might have been Wings of the Apache, but no, it's not. It's something else. Um, but it was shot from kind of half documentary, half made up footage from from the kind of front of the, the aircraft at night over Baghdad. I think this is the second. I think this is the second Gulf War. Uh, there was about eight uh, H 64s going in, and then they got absolutely in the first wave, absolutely shot to pieces by. Yeah, they, they did. Everything. One of my uh, instructor pilots was on that uh, ah. mission, very similar, and I mean he had his. Uh, Tad's bucket blown off. He lost his penvis. He was the, the only thing he had was uh, he had backup goggles and they wound up having to come home. But yeah, they they were waiting for him. They got ambushed. And uh, um, yeah, it was it was pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, testament to the vehicle, though, like I said, I, I think all of these vehicles got hit, including some of the humans. Everyone actually survived. But, you know, only just. Um, and gives you an idea of how shut up these vehicles were. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm right in saying that they all made it back to their wherever they were trying to get to. Um, they did, and that's they did. pretty. And yeah, I, one guy did get hit pretty bad, uh, and I know he was physically hit himself, and he survived. Mm. Yeah, so that's good. Okay, well, I guess in a way that's kind of what they were designed to to do. As oh yeah. Well. Uh, did they have any armor at the bottom of there, or is it, or is it not armored? Uh, some, especially where the crew compartment is, uh, it is, but there's still a lot of exposed stuff under the fuselage. Yep. Cause, cause that, I remember seeing the damage. There were bullets going through cables and. Oh yeah. And... Oh yeah. Especially the teleboom. Yeah. Mm, okay. Very good. Uh, right. Uh, do you always have the same co-pilot and, heli and helicopter airframe or does it change on the type of mission from Black Snow again? Uh, yeah, Blackstone, uh, or Blackstone, um, so the way we did it, and I can only just speak to how our unit set it up and the training program is, uh, we, we really tried to fly with the same crew. Uh, so it was myself and a guy that I'd flown scouts with for many years and, uh, but he was new to the Apache community. So, um, but he flew in uh, the front seat. I flew in the back seat in pretty much every mission that we went on, we did together. Um, I think it's really important, um, especially in tandem seat aircraft, whether it's a Cobra or an Apache, uh, to really feel comfortable uh, with the guy you're flying, guy or girl you're flying with. Uh, because, and one of the things that people don't understand, when you're flying an Apache in the front seat or the back seat, you can't see what the other person's doing. So you really have to have a, a trust, especially at night on top of the trees or low level doing, I mean, you, you just really have to have a lot of confidence with the other person that you're flying with. Um, so yes, as far as the aircraft, uh, we had our names on the aircraft, but it was, it, that was specifically on um, uh, maintenance. Uh, which ones were up, which ones were down. So, you know, I'd fly an aircraft that has somebody else's name on it. So, you know, that was, that's just kind of the way it worked. Roger, and I suppose we're going to see exactly the same thing when, when we get it, because, I, well, I'm guessing here, but presumably we're going to have two humans in it, one front, one rear. And we do have vehicles like that at the moment, and, and it's absolutely key that they 
well get on with each other right and have that kind of chemistry if that's the right word absolutely because so yeah there's a there's just a trust and a camaraderie mm -hmm. with you that each one of you have with each other and i noticed you know watching y'all's videos um uh, like when you're flying in the F-14 and you're mm -hmm. Rio, you, you know, you fly with a lot of the times uh, uh, a guy that that is really calm. Y'all know each other. You know exactly what to do. And so that's really important. So you can relate exactly to, you know, that concept. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Very good. Okay, uh, question five from The Saint. Do you think the Apache would have benefited from having been fitted with retractable landing gear? Uh, you know, I've thought about that. Uh, no, I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, it's more, uh, electronics. It's more systems that you have to worry about going out. Uh, secondly, the, the, the landing gear on the Apache is rated, uh, I think it was like 10 G's or something like that for a survivable crash. If you're going down, especially at night, if you're low to the ground, the last thing you need to be worried about is trying to put your gear down. Right. You know, is there, you, you got, you're, you're overloaded. You've, you've got too many things going on. It's just, I, I, it's one less thing you have to worry about. So no, I would say, uh, it, absolutely not. Yeah. Now we've got direct comparison here, which say roughly speaking, the Russian equivalent would be the KA-50, which we've yes. had for years, for whatever reason, yeah. we've had it for years. Now that does have fully retracting landing gear. Yes. I don't know why, maybe it makes it go faster or whatever. However, for some, for some and I don't get this, it's a, it's a mentality thing. I and my boys half the time forget to put the landing gear up and or down. Now we never make the mistake in an aeroplane. In an aeroplane, it's ingrained in your brain. The gear go up, the gear go down. In a helicopter, <laughs> half the guys will just fly around with their gear down because it's not something you think about. All the other helicopters we have are skids or, exactly. or, or non-retractable. So yeah. it's, it's just, I don't know, it's an interesting thing. But um, and I'll just, just relate back to a few questions ago. The video I was talking about, Apache Warrior. Apache Warrior, thank you, the yes, stream. Yes, yes, that's what it was. And yeah. I saw it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, and I was just looking at the landing gear. It looks pretty... Uh, yeah, it, like you said, it looks like it's there to take a beating. There's no kind yeah. of, it's, it doesn't look stiff. It looks like it's supposed to go and kind of yeah. crush yeah. inwards. It, it actually crashes underneath. Yeah. The, it gives into, there's some areas that it gives into to, uh, that's the other kind of part of the crash worthiness survival of the aircraft. Right. Well, I will be testing our digital version of that to breaking. I can guarantee you that on purpose yeah. or not on purpose. We'll see. Yeah, I, I hear you. Right. Question six from Baldy64. Baldy64. How did did you cope with the cognitive load multiple radios multiple sensors coordinating tasks with your pilot co-pilot co etc did it ever get easier or was it always something you had to concentrate on well that's a that's another really good question uh it, yes it's it's very tough and you learn to definitely multitask quite a bit and then there there in lies that crew coordination so, for example, um, uh, the guy that I w flew with, uh, we would take turns back and forth flying, whether um, you know he was flying the aircraft from the front seat or I was flying from the back seat. But one of the things uh, that we did is whoever was, on, whoever was flying on the controls, the other person did the radios. And it's just we, we just went, you know, we automatically knew to do that with, the, you know, one another. And it's just b dividing up task within the cockpit. Uh, 
Um, I think one of the things that uh, we had happen, we had a very senior instructor pilot and he, we had a, a weak front seater and he was uh, uh, task saturated in the back seat because he was really having to do so much. And he had uh, this, he was doing a, uh, underground effect hover trying to look for some uh and this was not overseas this was stateside on a training mission he was trying to look for some pieces of, or some vehicles and it was at night and what what he didn't realize because he was so task saturated in the back seat uh he had a slight descent coming down and b before he realized it uh he had a blade strike with the trees mm. So it, it, it definitely happens. Um, I'm not going to say it gets easier, but you just learn to really do it. And some are better than others. And, I, you know, I just, uh, the way I always like to do it um, uh, is just dividing the task between the crew. Mm. Uh, I mean, so for instance, in our sim, if, you, if we were in a two-seater plane, usually the tasks would be, you would know, you would just know that the Rio does this bunch of stuff, the pilot does this bunch of stuff, and rarely do they merge. What I heard from you is that it's a bit more dynamic there, where you can share tasks a bit more, so it's not so it's more dynamic and less set in stone. Is that true, or did I hear that, that wrong? That's true, and, and uh, generally uh, the, my front seater would be looking at... Uh, looking at stuff with the tads and i would be looking um around close to the aircraft because i would have the gun so if i needed to if i was flying and i could um uh use the was switch which is the weapons action uh, action switch and i could just turn it on and fire a burst of 30 uh in the dire direction of uh, so let's say i'm flying over a ridge line and i come across someone and he just starts firing i can lay down immediate suppression while i'm flying and i would see that I, by the time i would have to tell the front seater to find to find it we'd be past him mm. so you know he's looking forward i'm looking around um and you know one of the things that people don't understand uh, uh i can fire every weapon from the back seat that the front seater can and the front seater can fire everything the biggest thing is he has the optics and the laser so uh i could fire if if um if my front seater was shot, I could fire a hellfire from the back seat uh, if I had somebody else uh, lazy. I mean, that's the f one of the fascinating things about this vehicle. I was I just found out about, about this a few days ago that, uh, you know, in a, a traditional doctrine would be you have the pilot flies the plane, the gunner fires the guns, end. This aircraft is, like you said, not fully, but almost fully interchangeable in that the pilot can also fire the weapons and and can the gunner also fly the plane oh absolutely isn't that interesting yeah. yeah the front seater as a matter of fact that's the other thing is if you're on um i think the longest mission i had was three bags of gas and it was about 10 hours and uh we 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 were just flying up uh we were in northern afghanistan and uh uh we were kind of doing um uh, aerial reconnaissance for our guys and and uh you know you you can't i mean you have to divide that flying up or you just you get so exhausted right so and this is obviously designed into the aircraft just to kind of finish this section off i mean any idea behind 
the doctrine that made them to design it like that? Is it survivability or? I don't. I don't know specifically, but a hind is definitely a flying tank. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, right. Uh, where did we get to? Seven. This is from our own Ito, who is an F-16 maintainer. In your opinion, which did you like better to fly and or use the AH-1 or AH-64 however you quantify that? Uh, I would definitely say the 64, the Apache. Um, uh, the one thing, and that was mainly because of the rotor system. Uh, rotor system on an Apache being fully articulated versus a semi-rigid rotor system is a lot more forgivable. So you can get yourself into some situations, um, you know, that, that with a Cobra, you've got to be real careful uh, to not have any negative Gs or negative load on that, uh, on that rotor system, mm -hmm. where uh, in the Apache, you can have a negative load on, on that rotor system. I, I think I'm correct in saying that the AH-1 has a similar rotor setup to the Huey, so that you can correct. have mast bumping and all that nasty stuff. Absolutely, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. You, you, uh, you can get yourself in trouble, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you know, I mean, in Apache, uh, you, you know, I think everybody has seen um, uh, videos of you know Apaches rolling right. and looping, and which it it can. Mm. And and even right before I left, they did a uh, our operator's manual would always give you limits of plus or minus 60 degrees on the roll and plus or minus 30 degrees on pitch. Well, they, they started saying, okay, you're flying combat. You need to know what this aircraft can do. And it was called combat maneuvering flight. And they would take us out, uh, up at altitude around 3000, uh, uh, MSL. And, and, uh, you start doing 120 degree banks and combine that with, uh, a minus 60 uh, nose down and you're looking at the ground through the rotor system mm -hmm. uh, and it's just been you know it just it'll show you what uh, the the whole concept is showing you what the aircraft can do and it's just so forgiving right okay just superior engineering superior design by the sound That's, of it yeah that rotor system's awesome okay very good right uh here we are we've got hey y'all um is that a texas thing hey y'all well, that <laughs> that's, that's a texas, that's a texas. how about that uh <laughs> how long is the uh what is this saying how long is the ah64 pilot formation sorry but i don't understand what that is so you'd have to figure that out what are the steps you're going through do you think it'll be possible to operate the ah64 in a single seat version obviously in the sim it's different to real life will we be able to fly as a single person thanks from black spark yeah i wasn't sure exactly what he was talking about on the uh how long is the pilot formation i don't know if uh he's talking about uh how long uh um an average mission with with your flying in formation i don't know um one of the things that uh we'll we'll go out uh, we never went out single ship. So we were always a flight of two, whether that was a one Apache escorting a Blackhawk or a Chinook or two Apaches. Um, prior to 9-11 and, and, you know, those events, we always trained for the Cold War. And so it was always going out with a flight of Apaches loaded up with hellfires and uh you know looking at russian tanks and so that's kind of what 
the premise was, you know, why the why the age 64 was built anyway. So uh, so tactics obviously changed quite a bit. Um, but, you know, you go out in formation and fly, uh, but it's a loose formation in court, you know, obviously in combat because of maneuvering. So um, uh, I wasn't wasn't sure. Now, yes, you could fly. So, for example, like I said, if if either the front seater or the back seater was shot or killed, uh, the other person could fly it back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the second, now I've got to be careful not to get you in trouble or put you on the spot too much, but roughly thinking, in the game, or well, the sim version, we won't always have two humans. In fact, probably rarely will we actually have two humans ready to fly in a single airframe. Will they find a way in the sim so that we, you can just fly as a single person? I'm, I, I do not know the answer to this because it has not come up. Uh, but I'm sure they're looking at, uh, you know, how the F-14 right. uh, and, and so, you know. So an, that, an AI control, an artificial intelligence yeah, guy. Gonna have, yeah, they'll obviously have to be. So, mm. But uh, uh, beyond that, I really can't, can't say. Okay. Right. Um, next. Hey, man. Interesting. I wanted to ask if there was any major flaw in the Apache compared to other helis. So I guess I guess maybe a, an example would be like the Huey with its with its rotor design. Uh, love and respect from Pakistan. Okay. Um, you know that's that's interesting. I I, I think that um, probably just the aircraft today are so much more technical. Uh, they're basically flying computers. And right. so the last thing you want to do with your PC is to set it outside and let it get rained on <laughs> snow, 120 degrees, you know, uh, it, it, cause that's basically what you're doing. So I, I think, you know, going back to the, to the, uh, you know, Huey and, and somewhat of the Cobra and the OH-58 uh, Alpha Plus, Alpha Chuck that I flew, it was so much more simple. So, uh, you know, and it didn't take 20 minutes to get all your systems up. You go in, hit a couple of buttons, and you start, start it and go. And so uh, I, I, would, I wouldn't say it's a flaw for the Apache. I would say it's a flaw for all modern aircraft right. at this point yeah absolutely and the harder it, yeah like you said the harder uh, it is to maintain the more problems there's going to be we do have also, also had the pleasure of a while ago interviewing a um an apache mechanic i forget his exact title but he would be in there in the in the guts of the plane and, oh, yeah. and this isn't really a flaw. It's just how the plane was aircraft was designed. He said, it, compared to everything else that he ever saw, it leaked. Okay, so this aircraft, for whatever reason, it would just be constantly spewing out oil, spewing out fluids, and and kind of reminds me back in the sixties of the SR seventy one. You know, like spewing out fuel because just how it's designed. Um, well, I I can tell you, Cap, I wouldn't want to fly an Apache that didn't. Because <laughs> <laughs> then that's normally something would be wrong right. if it was completely dry and clean. Right. Do we have any idea? I can't remember whether I asked him or not. Any idea? It was all about tolerances and stuff like that. And Yeah, everything. And, and that kind of goes into, you know, on the maintenance side of the house. And uh, yeah, but there are uh, there are tolerances on certain and transmission, you know, transmission fluids and gearbox fluids and you know some has to be over half some has to just have some in it you know so it's it it, it is interesting 
Mm -hmm. Very good. Right, next, 14. So I've always wondered how safe is it flying a helicopter compared to a fighter jet? What happens in a helicopter if you get in trouble? Sure. Um, you know, if you're in a fixed wing uh, and you have a major issue, you either need to find a long runway or a long highway to land or you got to eject out. Uh, for, I think, you know, uh, for us helicopter guys, it's all auto rotation for us. Right. And depending upon how good you are in the aircraft, um, uh, you know, if you needed to, you could set it down virtually anywhere. So I think it gives you a lot, uh, a lot more options, but, um, depending upon your altitude, uh, that you're flying at, um, you don't have as long of a time to, as you're gliding in a fixed wing. <laughs> so, right. uh, so it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, six and one half dozen are the other. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of auto rotation. As a, as an amateur like me, auto rotation is great when you're told something's about to be wrong and you've got some altitude. Like when we do, you know, test it, we start ourselves off at a thousand feet and we say something's about to go wrong. You know, you're turning the engine off. In combat, when you're going, you know, flying at one hundred feet and you know you've got things buzzing around you and things happening, I've personally, again, I'm an amateur, but I've never managed to save a helicopter before uh, from actual problem with auto rotation because well you, like you said you 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 very rarely got the altitude or the time to think about it um i can't think of any clever thing to say but you've got anything to kind of add on to well, that well you know no believe it or not uh yeah depending upon how fast you're going how low you're going i mean there, there's a there's a chart and dead man's curve and you know what's what's what you can do i will tell you we had an incident with one of our aircraft so you got to remember i was in Afghanistan, uh, so 2003. So it was pretty, you know, we were pretty kind of at the beginning of everything over there. And, um, we had us, we had a special lot of 30 millimeters and, uh, it was bad. We had, uh, so one of our aircraft was, uh, firing, he was low level fired the 30 and the, uh, the, the 30 millimeter rounds actually inside the belt blew up. Wowza. And so it, it, uh, it blew most of the gun apart, uh, all underneath. They were lucky that they didn't receive any kind of physical damage, you know, from, from that or shrapnel. But like I said, with the crew compartment, it, it's, it's, you know, they, they've really taken pretty good care of, of the pilots, but, uh, he, he wound up not having to shoot an auto, but, um, and we can get into, there's a, backup control it's called bucks but backup control flight system that was activated and and they managed to uh, put that do a rolling roll on landing and and uh, uh right as they hit the ground and they were coming to a stop uh i mean they were still scooting um uh they noticed a ditch so then they had to pick it up again fly it again over the ditch and then land it again so uh he did a remarkable job saving that aircraft, and uh, they both got a broken wing award for it, uh, which is kind of a, um, uh, an award we get for a damaged aircraft. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, you can be um, uh, depending upon airspeeds and altitudes, uh, auto rotation can be tricky. But I know a lot of guys that are real, you know, back in the day, are real good at doing it. Yeah, awesome.
Awesome. And, and and I will I will and I think there's another question about this. I my father was probably one of the best at doing it, hmm. and so we'll get into that in a little bit. Okay, awesome. Right, uh, let's push on then. I've heard the pilot can use the mtads slash pnvs to look through the front dash with their helmet mounted display and see the ground. But my question is how far can you look down with it? Greetings from Netherlands. I think you need to just expand that a little bit from, for the viewers. MTADS, PNVS? Yeah, so, so TADS target acquisition uh, designation site and PINVIS pilot night vision right. uh, center. So the M is modernized. So I, I flew uh, A models and D models. So A models had the legacy FLIR. So first gen uh, in, you know, there's a big, big difference between what they're flying now to what I started out flying. So the M's from modernized uh, and it is a big difference. Um, so uh, the, the, your eyeballs like you think about this, uh, you, your sensors are, I forgot what, uh, six, eight feet in front of you. So you always have to kind of remember that what you're seeing on your eye is, you know, uh, six feet, seven feet in front of you on the nose. So, uh, and roughly, if I remember correctly, the 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 azimuth on the pinvis was plus or minus ninety degrees, uh, plus twenty degrees, uh, minus forty five degrees down, and on tads it was plus or minus one twenty, plus thirty, and minus sixty. Now the difference is is that. Uh, um, the, the slew rates, and this is always something that the Apache community is always kind of uh, griped about. And, and the, the, I guess when we kind of go back to the flaw, uh, this was one flaw. They made the slew rate of the Penvis 120 degrees a second. So when you move your head back and forth, it'll follow you exactly the way you're, you're moving your head. Whereas TADS, if you're flying with the TADS, uh, it's a six plus or minus 60 degree slew rate. So it's half of pinvis. Right. So you have to kind of move your head a little slower because if you just do this, you've got to wait for the tads bucket to catch up. So there's like a lag latency. So there is a, there is a definite lag. Okay. And so, uh, that's just something that's inherent to, uh, you know, uh, alphas and deltas. I don't know if they fixed it on the echoes. I, I really don't know anything about an echo at this point. Uh, but, uh, that was always something that we had to struggle with as far as the, uh, uh, flying with, uh, tads was the slew rate. Weird, wasn't it? I guess, yeah. well, I don't know why, but, uh, and just for the layman, what we're talking about is this kind of sensor array on the nose, right? That is correct. Right. That's interesting. I've never really looked at it closely. You've got kind of three things, three cameras. I don't know what the word is for them. Yeah, centers. you have a day side and a night side right. um, laser range finder on the TADs, and then you have the uh, the Penvis. So, um, you know, and of course, it's got all the night stuff uh, uh, on it. Now, you can still fly during the day uh, um with the symbology and everything. And, and the other thing that I noticed, you know, if you're having to, if you're in a dusty, sandy environment, um, uh, you know, you've got a camera uh, right out on the ball or get a camera right out on the nose of the aircraft. And so if you, uh, there's, there were times that I actually turned on the pinvis during the day 
to see a landing place, you know, huh. whether it's uh, a, yeah, clever. you know, landing arming pad or something like that. So, you, you know, you can do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Got quite, yeah, I see. I'm just looking at a picture from the front here, and I'm just looking at the pilot's head. You've got an okay line of sight, but I see what you mean. That you yeah, can't see. If, if you, you know. think about this, so as you're coming in, your nose is up. Right. You know, so you really cannot see right over the nose. Right. So you're looking out your left, you know, your right and your left and stuff. So there were times that if I wanted, if I, you know, if I was flying over trees or wanted the, uh, the uh, an arming pad, uh, I had, I would, turn on the 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 uh pinvis because the your your eyeball is right on the nose of the aircraft so that's what i and that was just a technique i used i had an old instructor pilot tell me about it and so mm. he said you know there's nothing that says you can't use the pinvis during the day to help you all right very good i shall try and remember so, that then yep okay okay uh right again from the saint in all out in an all-out punch-up between the apache and the black hawk who do you think would win? Well, I didn't think the Black Hawk was in a combat helicopter in the same way, but do you have an answer for that? Well, the, the black, as he said, Black Hawk or Black Shark? Oh, uh, sorry, the Black Shark. So the one that we've got, which is like the Rus yeah, Rusky version. Um, you, you know, I've never flown a K-50, so I, I don't know the maneuverability. I know, uh, so back in the day, I went through a course... Uh, uh, with the A model when we were putting stingers out on the, uh, yeah. uh, out on the wings and, uh, you know, Apache's awfully maneuverable. And, uh, you know, if you had those stingers on board, uh, <laughs> I, I would, I would say I'd give myself, uh, uh, an Apache with some stingers and, uh, I think we'd do it all right. Generally speaking in, in real life, the AH 64D did not have any air to air weapons. Am I right in saying that? Is, that? That's correct. That's right. Correct. Okay. So that's going to. Could you potentially, theoretically, still use the gun to fire against an air target, even if it didn't have an aiming oh, system for it? Absolutely. Uh, and if I had to, I would. Uh, the, the problem is that, uh, unlike a you know, 20 mic mic on a lot of the fighters and everything, mm -hmm. the chain gun's a slow bullet. Right. And so uh, it does a lot of damage once it hits, but it's a, it's not a good, I wouldn't consider it a good air-to-air. -air it's going to dip and, and, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's one That's one question I will answer then. <laughs> it's going to be Apache <laughs> versus the Black Shark in DCS, and we're going to have a few dogfights ready and see what happens. Okay, that can get ugly. Uh, right, very good. Uh, question 17. The AH-64D longbow has the radar mounted on top of the rotor. So, does this mean other versions don't have the radar? How do you spot, uh, how do you spot targets? Is it all optically? Yeah, so uh, uh, the question, or the, the answer to that question is not everybody, uh, it was not designed for every aircraft to have a radar on it. And uh, the radar was supposed to go do its thing and then send all that stuff to all the other aircraft. Um, and I know you and I've talked about, it. I don't want to go too much uh, beyond, uh, beyond all that with the radar stuff, but uh, uh, you, even with the radar bird, you're still, you can still um, uh, spot targets with the FLIR or the, or, or radar. So, uh, I mean, you can do it with both. So these aircraft, again, just stop me if you'd, don't want to talk about anything but the the kind of idea of these aircraft is you have a flight of 
four or eight, whatever a flight of longbows is. And you'd have, I don't know, maybe two that would have that radar on top. And they would be feeding target information via data link to the others. That's the whole idea of how this was designed, right? Absolutely. That's exactly what it would be, you know, what it would do. And so, so you might just have, you know, in a flight of four, you may have one radar bird. In theory, that's supposed to uh, go out, do its thing, and then via data link, send everything to the other aircraft. Yeah, right. Okay, well, we'll, we'll almost certainly have that function in our sim, so I look forward to seeing yeah. how that works. Okay. Absolutely. Right, very good. Um, 18, do ground units have IFF? Ooh, that's interesting. So you can know whether you are targeting friendlies or not. Do uh, you have to confirm a target from multiple sources before firing? Now, this is really interesting. This is all about IFF, knowing who you're shooting at. Um, I've got a few things to say, but um, what's your kind of proper answer? Yeah, please? sure. So um, uh, we use different, uh, whether it's day or night, different ways to, you know, see whether it's sparkles flare or you know what not to see what uh uh where the ground guys are uh sometimes day is panels um you know the other thing is um uh, uh and i know this is real simplistic but a lot of the times um uh you know they'll give you you know exactly uh their you know eight ten digit grid and uh, you mark, you can mark that on your map inside the aircraft, you know, and it's funny, you, you can even mark it with a little blue friendly symbol mm, yeah. uh, in, the, in the aircraft. Um, at night, it gets tricky, but you have, um, you know, IR pointers and all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, that you can see, um, uh, you know, where the friendlies are. So they don't have an IFF per se that you're pinging, but um they they have some things um that you can use um and, and like i said i don't you know i don't want to go into specifics but there's some things that they have uh, that you can tell right okay well that that um that varies uh with for instance uh the aircraft equivalent the a10 the modern a10 if you look around with your helmet mounted display and you can see uh, symbols appear where tanks and stuff like that are and that is a radio IFF system and in my infinite wisdom as ever I've forgotten what it's called it's an acronym and if you go in DTS and you put the date later than a certain year so it's accurate and a vehicle uh, later than a certain year like a modern Abrams tank and you um, uh, and you put it somewhere on the ground and you fly your a10 by it you look at it in your helmet and it will show blue whatever the symbol is i can't remember and that's because it's got yeah. this radio iff system so we didn't have that as far as i'm aware on the apache and i'm going to guess yeah, we never we never had uh, uh we never had anything like that 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 now you know like i said with the radar stuff uh yes but but visually just flying over something i did not have a symbology in mind yeah saying friendly or you know enemy or everything so a lot of the times too is when i was flying uh, uh air cover and and it was actually troops in contact uh in afghanistan it's really difficult because of the terrain uh the mountains and everything so i would um uh, have the ground guys uh that i'm i'm uh, uh working with I would either have them fire a smoke grenade or oh, right. trace a tracer fire mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
on a particular area. Uh, and then what I would do is, and I don't think they even use these kind of rockets, but I used white phosphorus. I would use a single white phosphorus rocket. And because it's when it, when it blows, it's extremely uh, visual. And so we would mark, then the, the guys, uh, I would have my wingman after I rolled out, he would uh, get ready to roll in and they would tell us, write 50, add 50, you know, mm -hmm. then you're on target. So then we would fire another white phosphorus. And then if, if they said that we were, you know, right in that area, then we would just kind of unload in that area. Right. Um, if, if you're doing a hellfire, you absolutely have to visually, optically see uh, what you're firing unless you were firing, you know, unless you have guys on the ground that are, that, you know, are lazing a target and you have permission to launch, they're the ones that are going to give you the launch authority because they're eyes on. Um, but that's kind of how we, you know, roughly what we did. Roger. And that kind of did the idea of what you're talking about there differs from our sim, at least the way we use it. We, because for us, you know, if, if friendlies get shot, it's not the end of the world. You just click respawn and you're alive again. So we tend yeah, to just go in all guns blazing. <laughs> Enemy are roughly over there, fire the rockets being real alive. You can't yeah. do that, right? So it's you know yeah. it's 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 the worst thing in the world, obviously, to to damage a friendly. So you got to be careful, and like you said, you got to be you know talking to your guys a lot. You know, where are the bad guys? Can you put some red tracer over there? How where? How close is my rocket? So so uh, one of the things that we did, and uh, they had uh, so that, you know, like I said, it was in '03, and so we were working with Navy SEALs, and and of course their budgets a lot more than ours yeah. <laughs> in, in in the in those kind of communities. And uh, so at night, you know, that's the, the another bad thing about FLIR is you cannot see because of the IR spectrum, right. you cannot see uh, an IR pointer. Yeah. So uh, the way we would always do it is uh, the, the front seater had goggles down so he could see uh, we had an IR pointer on the on the 30 millimeter. And so he could slew that. They could see where we were pointing. He could see the front seater could see what the what the other ground team was doing. And then from the back seat on my symbology, I could see where my front seater was looking via symbology. And I would just line up the aircraft via symbology. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. And the only th other thing I've got to add is that obviously these systems and these technique techniques are all born in blood. Obviously. Um, oh, from, uh, Unfortunately, and, and I may get this, this statistic wrong, but the idea is that that I think it was Gulf War One. Um, I think it was the first air-to-ground kill of Gulf War One was an Apache on a friendly. I think it was an M113, um, and yeah. it just showed. Uh, it just showed. Colonel Colonel Hills. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, he was the one who did it, and and the the thing about it is, with that incident, was um, uh, because of that incident, one of the uh, exams that we have to do. So we have an aerial helicopter gunnery skills test that we take twice a year, right? And and like the last few pages of it's about a fifty uh, about a fifty question exam. Mm. Um, is identifying vehicles via FLIR. Right. And so they'll have different threat systems, but not just the pictures of the vehicles, but it's what they look like under FLIR. 
and you have to identify them. And that is something, you know, as we start getting with weapons that go longer and further and farther, you know, that's just something that is uh, something inherent in uh, danger uh, as far as fratricide is concerned. Right. Absolutely. And, and just roughly tell me how that, are you sitting in a simulator or something? How, how does that... Looking at oh no! The uh, what they've done is is they've actually gathered the, the pictures right. uh, of the vehicles. Well, we do it both ways. So the the skills, the helicopter gunnery skills test is a written exam. Uh, all the pilots sit in a classroom. We we are required to take it um, uh, twice a year. Uh, that's part of our gunnery. Uh, before you have to do it before and pass it before you go out and actually shoot with aircraft. And then there's there's two tables, and I think it's table six and seven, or five and six maybe. Um, yeah, I think it's table five and six that you do in the simulator, day and night. And then once you pass it, then you're uh, basically allowed and qualified to go out and fire live ordnance with the aircraft, which we do every single year. Uh, uh, you have to be qualified every year. Right, okay. And you'll be happy to know it's not just you guys. I've recently interviewed a... SAM operator and a JTAC and uh, again twice a year he had to sit through hundreds of slides saying that's an F-15 at 30 degrees left that's a flanker uh, you know because he's got to know yeah, exactly yeah, what he's absolutely. shooting the whole time we, right? We, we very much and, and that's the other aspect too uh, I think a lot of people don't understand is the amount of studying uh, that yeah it's fun to just hop in an right, Apache yeah but there's a there's a lot more that goes along with just yeah. you know hopping in for that two hour flight. Yeah. No. Of course. Yep. That's that's why it's a professional profession, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, excellent question. That was that really got us going. Okay. Uh, yeah. Question nineteen. What made you want to fly helicopters? Does the U.S. have a version of the U.K. cadets where you can join early as a youngster? Sure. Um, so, uh, yes, we have service academies. Uh, so uh, United States Military Academy is at West Point, um, uh, Naval Academy, uh, Annapolis in Maryland. Uh, they have a Coast Guard Academy. Um, so, that, so we do have a lot of those uh, service academy training programs, uh, ROTC reserve officer training programs in college, uh, warrant officer uh uh, training, you know, have to go to warrant officer flight school and warrant officer candidate school first and then on to pilot training. So there's various forms that you can do, um, uh, of, you know, you have different routes to go to, to earn your wings. Um, so this is kind of what I was uh, uh, talking to you, Cap, about earlier on kind of how I really kind of started my aviation career. So my father uh was the chief pilot for the state police for all of texas right cool and so he controlled all law enforcement aviation uh in in texas for the state police well he went through the uh bell helicopter test pilot program um uh way back uh late 60s early 70s and so i grew up uh i remember bell helicopter would bring a helicopter for my dad to test out and uh I was five, six years old and, you know, I, I would sit in the front seat with my father. So, um, but, uh, for, uh, about a year, he and his partner were flying about five hours a day and, uh, you know, two, two and a half hours in the morning two two and a half hours in the afternoon. And all they did was auto rotations for the entire year. Wow. 
and they got so good at it that it was um, uh, not just uh, you can do an auto rotation, you know, you know, hundred hundred knots at a at a hundred feet. Uh, you can do it, um, and they would practice it. And I I've done it in an OH fifty eight in flight school. Is you just basically maintain as as you lose your engine, you're going you're still going at a pretty good clip. Um, you just have the collective down, and but you're bringing your your cyclic back and aft, so you're maintaining your altitude, but you're just slowing yourself down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so they they wound up doing 180 autos, 360 autos, and uh, all kinds of auto rotations. So. So really and truly, from an early age, I was I was around um, aviation, fixed wing, and helicopters. Uh, and when you put a five or six year old in a in a helicopter, you know you kind of get the bug. Yeah. And and so that's kind of what happened with me is I knew I knew that it was just what I wanted to do, and um, uh, that's exactly what I did. That's interesting because every single pilot we talk to, we ask the same question. It's almost always an, uh, a, a carbon copy, not necessarily the, the story, but you know, it's either my parents did this or my uncle worked with this type of plane, and so I had, you know, it's always, it's imprinted as a kid, and it just seems yeah. you can't get away from it, which is good, obviously. But and, yeah, and uh, you know, it was always in my family because my grandfather was a pilot in command of a B twenty four bomber in World War Two. So it was just, I just, mm. uh, it was always kind of in the family. So, mm. uh, you know, I just kind of kept on. Yeah, awesome. And obviously that shows how important it is to expose youngsters to things like this. Um, I've been asked uh, by the stream, ask about J-R-O-T-C. Sorry if you did mention this, but does that mean oh, something yeah, to you? Oh, yeah, Junior ROTC. So, yeah, I know uh, we did not have that in my high school, um, but it is a good program uh, for, uh, the individuals, uh, that already kind of know, cause I knew from, like I said, an early age, what I wanted to do. So I kind of, you know, steered my, my, my life towards that direction. But, uh, I think if, if you have, uh, if your listeners are out there and, you know, they're wanting to go this route, I think the earlier, the better. Right. So, um, you know, if, if your school has a junior ROTC program, uh it's and what it is it's exposure cap you know you know as well as i do the more you get exposed to yep. uh the the better off the more well-rounded of an individual you are yep. so i i would highly encourage you know uh you know any listener that you have that if they have that at your school and that's the direction that they think they're going to go try it you know absolutely because that's what it is exposure and you know you, you try it you know you may like it you may not but at least you've tried it yeah, no, wonderful. Well said. Okay. Uh, question 20 is a repeat. It was just talking about which is your favorite helicopter, so we'll skip that because yeah. we've literally done that. This one, next one, I've just been reading ahead. You may not be able to answer, but let me ask it anyway. Okay. Hello, hello Cap. Uh, what is the combat radius with a heavy loadout for armor? Uh, also, what is the preferred... Sorry, what is the preferred loadout for maximum distance? Greetings from Rodog. So let me just ask that again. What is the combat radius with a heavy loadout for armor? And what is the preferred loadout for a maximum distance? If we're allowed to talk about any of that. I, I think I'm going to skip that one. <laughs> yeah, well, this is this is where we got in trouble. So I recently got in trouble. Um, you know, as I understand doing these things, I will, you know, I will get in trouble eventually. I did. I was for talking about 
just something really that sounded stupid. It's talking about the physical fact of how many bullets you put in an aeroplane, right? Yeah, how many yeah. load in. I, you know, I never thought you only got in trouble for it. So be it. Um, so this is the kind of thing I have to be careful of. How many miles can this do? How many bullets can that take? How yeah. many Amrams would you load onto this plane? That's where yeah. you start getting in trouble. So we'll skip that one, guys. 22. Hi. Is there some sort of rivalry slash competition between fighter pilots and fighter helicopter pilots? Oh, well, there's... <laughs> yes, and uh, there's a lot of competition between the airframes right so but you know helicopters so uh between chinooks blackhawks and apaches uh we used to give each other a lot of crap um you know believe it or not a chinook is the fastest hmm. army helicopter cool it's shocking because it's so big but yeah. they're really they're really <laughs> doesn't look they're fast not loaded up, they're fast and so i tell you one of the things that we hated the worst as an apache guy is having to tell them to slow down. Because <laughs> that, that, that was just bad for us, you know, because yeah. we knew we, as soon as we landed, we got back home, we were going to, you know, hear a lot of crap mm. about it. But, um, but yeah, oh, and we, and there's joke, you know, we would do jokes on all kinds of things. And so, yeah, um, uh, I, I, I know for a fact of us, uh, we had stickers from our unit. And uh, before a mission, we go, we'd pass a black cock or something and, and uh, put it, you know, underneath the, where the, you know, uh, uh, underneath the belly next to the landing gear. And we'd just stick one of our patches up there. <laughs> so just, <laughs> you know, just, just to do it, yeah. you know, so there was a, there was a lot of rivalries, but, but uh, you know, and a lot of good friendships too, because yeah. I still keep in contact with all those guys. So, you know, the majority of them. So it's, it's, there is a big rivalry. And, and I think rivalry is good because it pushes yep. you and makes you do, you know, makes you want to be better. And uh, so I think, uh, um, you, you know, it was always which, which unit's doing more, you know, to push themselves, to train themselves. And you would, you know, you would put yourself up against another unit. The other thing is, is I don't know how it is uh, overseas or, or UK or anything, but, but like here uh, they have uh, readiness, uh, uh, you know, readiness, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but the, the arms inspections and, and all kinds of stuff that they do army wide. And, you know, you want to have the top grade. So yeah. you're putting yourself, your unit as the top unit, you know, so there's, there's, there's a lot of rivalries, uh, you know, in general. So, um, uh, and I'll tell you another quick story is, uh, um, I had some old Vietnam helicopter instructor pilots and right next door to us were the uh, F-16 guys. And they couldn't give us rides in the F-16s, but our guys could give the rides in the front seat of a Cobra. In the front seat of the Cobra, the, the, uh, the cyclic's on the right-hand side and obviously the collectives mm -hmm. uh, uh, on the left-hand side, but it's just like being in an F-16. Right. And uh, so, we would, our instructors would uh, take those F-16 guys, put them in the front seat. And then they had a, a thing called, if I remember correctly, a SCAS, like stability augmentation control system or something like that, that makes you hover to let, you know, it dampens out a lot of things and makes you hover it a little bit easier. So the, you could turn it off from the back seat. So our instructors would put the F-16 guys in the front, take them out, 
turn the system off and then <laughs> give them the controls and they couldn't, they couldn't keep it within the football field. So, <laughs> you know, so, you know, you do things like that all the time. So yeah, there's, there's a rivalry. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing I've heard, like I said, I've interviewed God knows how many people now, and, and and I don't just mean pilots, I mean ground crews, I mean, from top to bottom, everyone's always competing with someone else, and like like you said, that's a good thing, when, especially when, yeah, you know, yeah. if you might go to war one day, that one might save your life um, from that, so absolutely, interesting. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, where do we get to? Was the terrain in Afghanistan taking a toll on the choppers? So just to remind us, terrain in Afghanistan, is, is it sandy? I know it's mountainous, obviously. Yeah, it's, uh, really, as a matter of fact, uh, they laid a lot of where we stayed. Uh, they came in and put rocks down, big rocks, and that was to keep uh, all the sand and dust down and everything. Um yeah, it was it was a bad environment. I, I understand a lot of the Iraq stuff out in the deserts just as bad. Uh, the problem is is that the it's the altitudes that you're working at. Uh, oh, I see. It, the yeah. altitudes are insane. Um, you, you know, you're you're crossing. There's there's mountains over there that are you know seventeen, eighteen, nineteen thousand. Wow, and and so you're you may be flying at at you know, 14, 15,000 feet MSL and 800 AGL, you know, so yeah. fly, you know, covering a ridge line or something like that. So, so uh, I, I think the hardest part about flying in Afghanistan, and it made me a much better helicopter pilot is power management. Right. Because uh, you just don't have excess power. So right. you've got to, to be able to land uh, and take off with minimal power settings. Well, that's really interesting. And in our sim, it's modeled uh, pretty well. And it took me a while to respect how sensitive helicopters are to altitude. Now, aeroplanes, yes, obviously, aeroplanes are also sensitive to altitude. You can't do big maneuvers and stuff at 40,000 feet. But generally speaking, a big, fast aeroplane will happily go along at 40,000 feet, maybe even above. Now, a helicopter is so much more sensitive for for physics that I just don't understand, it's all to do yeah. with density there, yeah. whatnot. But a Huey that we drive, an old UH-1H, you get that up to about about eight thousand feet, and it is constantly on the edge of a overheating from charging the engine so hard, and b just falling yeah. out of the sky. It is yeah. horrendous. Oh yeah, and so I, you know, yeah, I had uh, uh, there were times, you know, we were above fourteen, fifteen thousand feet, and uh, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's crazy. Uh, that's it's crazy powerful that, chopper to be up there then isn't it it's a powerful chopper to be up that high yeah yeah i mean it is uh it, it's it the 64 did an amazing job um you know considering uh you know the environment that mm. we were flying in i never had that issue i um i i think the the one of the scariest things for me was we got caught in some uh in the winter time got in the mountains in some icing conditions and uh that that caught our attention what uh, effect would that have on you got, do what what kind of effect would that have on you on your helicopter torque if uh you 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 would you would lose torque because if the uh building up on your rotor blades right. it's very similar it, it, it'd be the same thing as if a fixed wing was encountering icing and it was icing on the wings right you start uh, losing lift and so we we started getting into some ice uh, uh, icing conditions and uh, they pulling us off of the mission uh, just just for that reason. So, 
that caught our attention because you know as as helicopter pilots you're not you're not you're generally not exposed or flying at altitudes where icing's where you're even worried about ice mm-hmm. i mean my so, yeah in my f-16 and my f-18 that's normal we've got a big button saying anti-icing we put it on and it heats our leading edges up and it, it does whatever yeah. it does and your, your helicopter's not doesn't have anything like that well exactly because in the factory when they're designing these they're they're not saying this is something that's going to be exposed to these temperatures um they had there are there there is anti-ice on that um but it it drastically if it if it is connected um in aircraft then it takes up so much power right from the engine to do anti-ice uh that you you would have a difficult time flying in the, in the mountains you know yeah. over there it was just one of those things. okay well that was really interesting learning about that because yeah yeah that was really interesting again that stuff we're all going to come across soon so very good uh the next question we'll skip it was basically why do you do helicopters instead of jets and we've literally had you answer that already so that's yeah, fine there you go question 25 what is the most demanding mental thing when you're flying a combat chopper Um, I think it's, it's, it goes down to kind of what we were talking about earlier, situational awareness, where the friendly units are, where the enemy is, uh, and mainly where the friendly units are because you're, you're operating in and around them and you're everything off around them. So, um, uh, working with that, I, I, and I probably the radios because working with different radios, uh, air to air versus air down and switching back and forth, having multiple conversations um, uh, with with people. It's always funny. My wife always gets a big kick out of me because I can sit down at a at a dinner with uh, <laughs> 10, 12 people and there's different conversations going on at once. And I can just over years and training and everything, I can follow all the conversations at the same time. Well, that's really interesting. So, mm. Yeah, and it's the same way as far as uh, with the radio and the aircraft. I mean, it's it just, but it, it is mentally taxing, um, you know. And that's the 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 most difficult thing as far as flying combat is is uh, um, mostly flying the aircraft. But you get to a point where flying the aircraft is so uh, so natural that you don't even think about flying the aircraft. It's it's the battlefield, it's the situational awareness, it's all of that, and employing that aircraft as a weapon system, so. Right, and I, I'm gonna guess that is especially uh, relevant to you because you're kind of, you, you're in there with the troops, you're at low altitude, you, you, whereas maybe a standoff aircraft at 30,000 feet doesn't need to know as much as you. You need to know really everything. And so you've got to be talking to... You're really right, Captain. But I mean, you do the exact same thing on some of your videos. Yeah. So, for instance, like some of the Grim Reapers, y'all are, you know, like you're flying a, uh, a Harrier and you're going to a valley mm-hmm. and you're hitting a, you know, an aircraft gun or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you've got several guys getting it from you know, different directions. Well, think about, you know, just like how you're talking to all those guys. Um, It's kind of the same way. uh, You you know, uh, the communication has just got to be there. And there was a a saying, I had an old instructor pilot tell me, silence is deadly. Mm. So if you're not saying anything, 
that's the, you know, you're, you're missing an opportunity. You just got, you got to be, uh, you know, talking to other aircraft, you know, and, and when I say that, that's right old when you're trying to pull triggers and trying to say, you got to, you know, you've got to really be talking, letting everybody know, you know, what direction you're coming from, you know, okay, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in hot, you know, uh, coming south to north, uh, you know, I'll be over your left shoulder or your right shoulder, what have you, talking to the ground guys, you know. So it's, it's I just, it's that situational awareness talking. Mind you, and that's uh, just from another point quickly that something I used to see all the time when I, I was teaching kind of noobs in, in, in our sim was that what they couldn't do was fly the plane and do the talking at the same time. And and obviously, as you know, you need to build that, uh, whatever, I don't know the word is, independence maybe, to be able to operate your airplane, be doing all the buttons and all the bits and having a, basically a conversation with someone, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, that's where I say that the flying come just naturally. I mean, you, you can't even think about the flying because you're doing... Uh, so much of the other things mm. cool very good right okay uh question 26 are there any capabilities towards air to air in helicopters that you've flown uh main be not towards jets but other choppers so he's talking about any helicopters that you've flown have you ever had any air to air ability you talked about the stingers briefly on certain yeah, versions I never, I never flew uh i went through the stinger course on the a model Apache, and that was back in the early '90s, and and so and what what they were thinking about doing, but we never did. Instructor did go through had an air to air course at Rucker, late '80s, I believe it was, and he was a graduate of it, and and I remember I was in the front seat of the Apache, and me out, and this course this was an A model back in the early days. He took me out and he blew my mind away mm -hmm. on what that aircraft could do. And, and, you know, we were, we were literally, he was showing me air to air maneuvers of what he would do. And so, uh, <clears throat> so I was in the cockpit, but, uh, you know, we never ever did any kind of training, air to air training. Roger. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, DTS, are you a fan of DTS and do you fly it yourself? So, <laughs> so here, here's, I am a big fan. Um, I have been putting together a system over the course of the year. I'm one of those guys that are going to probably spend about five grand <laughs> selling the system. So I've already my TPR pedals. Um, I, I, I mean, speakers, I got a two inch curve monitor. I've got, I'm, I'm doing everything. So I bought everything. I've got the X56, um, with the monster tech yep. table yep. mounts. Yep. And uh, so I've got all of this. So I'm waiting to let my wife uh, uh, let mm. me buy a computer. So and I, I think I told you mm. uh, uh, for all your viewers, my daughter uh, has lived in London for the last couple of years. Yeah. And she's been going through graduate school uh, at the uh, University College of London in Bartlett. Uh, um, she's got a master's in architecture. And so so that's where my money's expensive. been going. That's very expensive. <laughs> So, uh, so now that she's graduated, I've been this last year. I've been putting together this system. Now, what I have done is I have a uh, laptop that I've been playing with uh, Mission Editor. Awesome. So I've been, you know, so I've downloaded it, and I've just been kind of going and and going through everything. And so uh, uh, I'm going to say probably in the next couple of months, I'm going to be up and running. 
Oh, great. Uh, hopefully in time for the Apache as well. I mean, I mean, oh, all... yeah. well, that's one of the main reasons why, because <laughs> they, they definitely want me to uh, fly it. Yeah, uh, of course. And, and give give feedback. Yeah, I was going to say in all seriousness now, all seriousness now, we've finally, after five years, got to the point where we're, we are attracting real pilots. Like I said, we've got a guy flying with us that basically, basically mirrors your credentials, probably different years, but, you know. Yeah. We've got uh, four total now, REF pilots that come and fly with us. And so, yeah, once you're up and running, definitely come and, you know, we're always open well, and receptive. Absolutely, would love to, because I've been watching y'all's videos yeah. for, like I said, the last couple of years. So I kind of feel like I... I'm I'm an adoptive member of the Grim Reaper. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very good. The next one is all about fantasy. Yeah, just pure fantasy. Like you know, Ferrari. For Ferrari is my favorite car. For instance, what is your all-time favorite aircraft? So plane or helicopter, and why? Any age. Okay, I would say combination of P fifty one Mustang and mm. a P thirty eight Lightning. Okay. Um, from that era, um, probably an F4 Phantom Vietnam era and, um, probably, uh, the F14. Sexy planes. Those are good, yeah, solid, I, sexy planes. All of them. I, I would, I would say that, um, uh, as far as helicopters, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously parcel to the Jet mm -hmm. Ranger. That's what my dad, my dad mm -hmm. uh, helped uh, write some of the performance charts, height velocity uh, uh, charts from uh, 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 for the Bell uh, 206. So that's that's obviously uh, probably one of my favorites. So, OK, very good. Very good. No, that's a, probably the best choice I've had so far. OK, uh, 29 um, up to back to getting blown up. If for whatever reason, the Apache is going down. Well, the the last lines of defense, for instance, do you have any energy absorbing seats uh, and other systems that might increase the chances of avoiding injury? And uh, back to your competitor, the KA-50 has an ejection seat. If I don't know if you're aware of that, it can eject through its own blades. Uh, now, you yeah. can't compete with that, but yeah, <laughs> yeah I can't. Uh, you know, it's very well known that the Apache's got a lot of crashworthiness systems, whether it's... Uh, uh, the seats and the strokes on the on the seats give away the the landing gear and everything. So I think they really designed it the best they could to uh, to absorb as many G's and and to protect the crew. So uh, and and I'll just kind of leave that. Uh, you know there are things in place and mm -hmm. uh, that are uh, helpful to the survivability of the crew. Yeah, very good. Uh, right. Um, question 30. What is the startup time from cold and dark to the moment you are ready to taxi and take off? Um, I think it, it depends on the crew and it depends on uh, how... Um, really how good you are so uh when i was flying uh qrf in models uh just to give you an example you know we walked around so i was always on night so we did 12 on 12 off uh days a week uh for two weeks at a time for qrf quick reactionary force and um uh so from the time you received the troops in contact call you had 15 minutes to be at 100 percent uh and pitch pole right so 
Uh, but we had already had, you know, when you go on uh, on that ship, you the first thing you do pre-flight aircraft. You have all your stuff out there. Uh, so it's running to the aircraft, hopping in and going. And, you know, when you do it so often, uh, you can get really fast at it. Uh, long, um, probably, you know, you could probably do it in 15 to 20. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Um, right. When you do your walk around uh, prior to mission, what are the main things that you're going to be looking for? And are there any, is there a certain pattern to doing the walk around? Yes, it's, there's actually a physical checklist, line item by line item, where you start and where you finish. Right. And, um, you know, that's, I mean, there's all kinds of things that you're checking for. So uh, the, the, the biggest thing to me is, is uh, um, you know, your blade rotor and fluids. Uh, making sure you know your trans you know transmission everything obviously cowlings and everything are, are secured uh whatnot but you're checking out the you know the main rotor head uh, <clears throat> you know tail rotor every you know all that kind of stuff if you see any cracks in the blades uh, you know thing that and you know you have seen we ha- you know have seen some uh stress metal fatigue uh before so i mean you know there's there's tolerances there's all kinds of stuff and if you have any questions concerns that's why you have your maintenance crew there and you know you know point it out to them my job okay the next one we've already talked about this i'll ask it again in case there's anything you can add hi if i want to follow your career steps where shall i start i'm 17 years old uh, that's fascinated by combat helicopters yeah, sure. Um, yeah, like yeah, like I said, uh, it, uh, JRTC or ROTC, and I don't know where this person probably lived. America, probably. If if, if it's uh, over here, then you know, write to your congressman uh, uh, or senator. Uh, you have to have a, a congressional or a senatorial appointment to the service academies, um, and I can tell you, they are, are you know one of the things that they look for is is a well-rounded, not just a person with good grades. Uh, they're looking at that uh, athlete that has you know that 3.8, 4.0 type you know grades, mm-hmm. and and you know who's involved in the community, who's involved. So the more that's why I said the more exposure you have, the more well-rounded you are, the better chance you have at succeeding in your career and. The other aspect is, is and, and I'm stealing this from another guy that I, I listen to a lot on his blog. He's a, 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 a F-16, F-18 pilot. Uh, make them tell you no. Don't just read something on the internet and say, you know, okay, well, you have to have, you know, this kind of hearing, this kind of eyesight and everything. Uh, and let's say you have 2020 in one eye and 2025 in another and, and, and don't just give up, make them tell, you, no, go through the process because I can tell you, there are waivers for just about any and everything out there. That's interesting. So, so, you know, don't give up, make them tell, you, no. Okay. Right. Mr. 17 year old youngster, off you go. Uh, question 33. Uh, just a question about maximum safe G-loadings uh, for, for the aircraft. Is there such a thing? Yes. Uh, so we there is a, uh, it's, uh, a max G rating on the, for positives and a max G rating for negatives uh, on the Apache and on the rotor system. Uh, 
I, you know, obviously not going to go into the specific numbers, but, but I will tell you that, that we don't feel the G's the way fixed wing guys do right. because most of our G's, even though it's, it's a, a decent number are absorbed through the rotor system. Now uh, I can do a negative G uh, a nose over in an Apache. And I've seen where, um, uh, my trifold knee border, uh, knee board that was on my knee, it actually kind of came mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you know, I, I can feel things like that. Um, and you kind of get that roller coaster feeling of, yeah. you know, you're, you know, you feel that, but in reality, you're not, you're not, not going to G lock, uh, uh, in an Apache where you would as in, uh, in a, a jet fighter. Have you ever seen an Apache or a helicopter that's come apart, you know, something broken because of a G, a high G maneuver? I have never seen it personally. Um, so I've never, I, I literally have never, I don't think I've ever even seen a video of, mm. of one that would, that I can't think it. of anything. No. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen one. Do you, and just to finish that off, uh, in an aircraft, my F-16, I've got a little number on my HUD saying you're doing this many Gs. Is that something you have or not? Yes, we we, we do uh, have uh, a G meter. Yeah, very good. Okay. 34, is the Apache stable in more severe conditions and is there enough reserve power if needed? Uh, yes, it's a very stable platform. Uh, you know, it, it has a hover hold, um, you know, that is uh, really, really good. An attitude uh, hold, uh, uh, altitude hold. So, you know, if you ever got into a situation where you went inadvertent IMC or something like that, always the first thing I would do was level the aircraft and hit... Uh, 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 attitude hold, you know, right. immediately, and and then that way, and just cl- you know, climb out of it. But yeah, very very stable platform. Yeah, I mean, excess power is always useful. We know it's not awesome. And you know, here's here's the thing, Cap. I I, I don't know. I think uh, there isn't any probably military aircraft, fixed wing or helicopters, that they give you the operator's manual and tell you, you know, how much you can pull versus, you know, over temping or over torquing the aircraft. I can tell you right now that, uh, they, they, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's a lot more that that engine will give you and a lot more the aircraft will give you if you need it versus what, what the manufacturer, you know, what the army or, Air Force Navy says you can do with it. I can tell you, I've, you know, I've experienced it in, uh, in combat and, you know, I've spoken to a lot of manufacturers that deal with the engines and everything, and it'll give you a lot more than they, than, than you're told it'll do. So yeah, you do have a little bit more, uh, percentage to go. Okay. Uh, technical question. Are the engines interconnected by a shaft or something? And if so, can you fly on one if the other engine fails? Yes, and uh, I've had to fly a D-Mod longbow with uh, one engine at idle and the other one at, at 100%. Uh, I had a, uh, um, a high side failure on my number two engine, uh, which is on the right-hand side, and uh, had to bring it back to idle and uh, made a roll-on landing 
uh, at the airfield, and you know, it was another day. Right but on. so, yes, very good. I mean, obviously, that's how you'd want to design it. So that that's fine. Oh yeah. Uh, what is the radar frequency interferometer RFI? Yeah, I'm going to skip the RFI. Um, and, and like I said, I just you know really don't want to get into the RFI and the radar stuff. Roger, that's fine. Next one, equally as baffling to me. Have you ever carried the AIM-92 on board? And I don't know what that is. Do you? I don't know what that is I'm either. I'm going to go and look it up. I never did. <laughs> look it up. Stand by. AIM-92. That is a stinger. And, yep, we've talked about brief briefly. Oh, okay. You were yeah, yeah. over the training okay. course for that. That was, that was, like I said, that was back in the early 90s. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I went through the course. Where I never saw it on the aircraft itself. So, uh, but I did go through the course. Roger, well, very good. I'm just going to say at this point, apologize for any background noise for oh. the viewers. I'm just having, I'm holding my headphones up because they've literally just fallen apart in my hand. Right, very professional. What is the typical mission duration and how long can you stay in the air if you are careful with consumption, if you're allowed or want to say? Uh, you, you know, just an average of uh, two and a half, 245. Um you know, depending upon, but, you know, you can take uh, external logs tanks uh, and, and fly longer. Matter of fact, uh, my instructor pilot uh, uh, was the man who fired the first shot of Desert Storm. Hmm. If you remember correctly, the first of the 101st mm -hmm. uh, went in and took those early warning radar sites mm -hmm. out um, in Desert Storm, and he was flight lead on that mission. And that's what they, they did is they actually had an aux tank on on their aircraft right. uh so yeah it, it, you know depending upon i've never done it myself but I, I know that you can right very good okay 39 do you have terrain avoidance system to allow you to conduct night missions and do you use night vision goggles um yeah we don't have a terrain system like that like the f-111 had but uh you know there's that again that kind of goes into the radar and i'm right. you know, not going to yeah. talk about that but uh yes we do have uh flight requirements for night vision goggles and flight requirements for uh nvs so night vision systems so again they're two really different types of systems you know one uh one uh uh, thermal and one uh, image intensifying and so obviously your goggles will uh depending upon your illumination and your illumination charts on what the moon is doing and everything you know you'll see you know you'll have obviously if it's zero illumination the goggles are going to be uh at one level versus the moon and illumination at a hundred percent. So, you know, because it's just image intensifying. So whereas thermal, so, you know, like I said, so different. So, but we are, we do have requirements for both. Yep. Very good. Okay. What is the future for the Apache in your opinion? Anything you can see coming over the hill, any major changes, anything? You know, I, 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 I have some friends that fly echoes and, and, uh, um they brought a lot of the power back that it needed um i would say the biggest uh future that i could see is just the the the, the improvements on the optics is is mm -hmm. going to be the best because in reality that's that's your bread and butter is your optics and so i would think that uh you know more improvements on uh m uh, pinvis and m tads um 
is going to be where the future, you know, is, is going to be as far as the 64 is concerned. Very good. Okay, I mean, that was as far as we'd got. Now, while we've been talking, the guys have been adding some on, um, so sure, we might as well sure. blast through them because they're probably based on what we've been talking about. 41, are you aware of Have Donut, by the way, before we, I, I ask this? Are you aware of Have Donut? Uh, probably not if you don't if you don't recognize it uh, um, i'm trying to read it oh, oh, so that's okay i'll read it out and i'll explain okay. it as we go because I, I get the idea i understand what he's talking about here was there a program for chopper pilots that can be compared to the have donut program where they teach you to engage soviet combat choppers like the hind and the camov so have donut for everyone out there was where we where sorry america acquired uh, Soviet aeroplanes via various means bought them stole them repaired crashed ones and so on and then what they did is they had a group of guys called the Red Eagles okay who went over a couple of decades and they were fighter pilots who flew things like the F-15 and the F-4 Phantom and learnt how to fight against these stolen MiGs okay and now they're, they're asking here was there any such thing that anyone knew about of helicopters I don't see why there would be because you don't have dogfights with with helicopters yeah I, I never uh, never flew against any of something like that the only thing that is even close is is uh there were some uh, i believe mi8s in afghanistan that were operational that were being flown by coalition forces um and uh you know you'd see them there uh you know at different you know different places but i never flew against one my job very good from all the choppers you have flown uh, you've done this already. We'll go over that one, I think. I mean, well, I'll read it anyway. From all the troubles you have flown, which one is the most enjoyable to fly and why? Your personal feel behind the controls. Um, uh, if it's just flying, I, I, I would definitely say an Apache because it was just, it's a, it's a lot of fun to fly. It's a lot of fun to fly. Okay, well. 44, is it possible for the ground crew to rearm and refuel your chopper while it's hot or do you need to shut down first? Uh, no, what we would do is, uh, uh, so the, the fuel, uh, is on where you put the fuel in, uh, is on the number two side. So we would shut down the number two engine. Uh, number one would be at a hundred percent and, uh, blades are turning. So, uh, hot, hot, hot refuel is dangerous and hot rearming is dangerous. Oh, so, but yes, you do do it. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, next one, I know who asked this, and I remember the same question was asked to the technician. Uh, let's see if you see what answer you come up with. What message do you get if the symbol generator, that's the symbol generator, fails on the A model? Any idea? Oh, gosh. It's been 15 years since I've flown an A model, so I don't even remember. <laughs> I, I, I can't remember, but I remember it's a trick question. Uh, there's a trick in there somewhere. Do you know what I, I mean? I don't think. I think that you could turn in the A model, if I remember correctly. You can turn this the symbol generator on and off by yourself, wow. because I've had. I remember. Um, I had an instructor pilot that when I was flying the system uh, and hovering, uh, he would do that, and because sometimes a lot of the times you get so concentrated on the symbology itself yeah. you just you kind of don't look at your other surroundings and so i remember him turning that off so that may be the but it's been a long time Roger. <laughs> since that's it's a fair, fair excuse i'd say yeah. which is faster and or more maneuverable the a or the d model 
Um, that's a good question. I'm going to say the A because it was a lot lighter. Right. And that's the same in almost every almost every airframe. F-16A, F-18A, maybe not a Tomcat, but you know most of the aircraft are lighter and they haven't had so much stuff added. Well, and see, that's, what you just said is exactly true. It, you know, that's the problem with, uh, with upgrades and add-ons. That's fine. And, it, you know, D model is a lot more capable in a lot of areas, but it's a lot heavier. Right. Mm -hmm. Did you ever ha experience any aircraft emergencies? We've talked about your single engine, but anything else of note? Um, sure. Um, uh, I would say I had the high side on number one, uh, or number two, rather. And um, I remember in Afghanistan, uh, we had... Um, a master caution come on and um i think it was main transmission chip light um which is something that you're supposed to uh land as soon as possible um i i didn't um and i was saying some prayers to get me back to uh, home base because we were in the middle you know, I'd left one fob and going back to the main base in Bagram. And, and uh, the problem is, is that, <clears throat> you know, the Russians left six million landmines mm. across that country. And we were always afraid um, of landing the aircraft um, outside of our authorized areas to land. Because I, I literally was always afraid of, la of, of landing on an IED. Mm. Um, so I I flew it all the way back with that with that master caution and main transmission ship and uh, I you know made it back but I I just figured I would go that route and landing you know the other thing is you're you're in the middle of the you know mountainous desert you know if you sit there and shut down and you're by yourself um, you, you know the aircraft that you know your wingman can't just stay with you and definitely just because of fuel. Uh, they're going to have to come out and, and uh, uh, secure the area and everything else. So um, that was really my, you know, I mean, I've had little little things here and there, but but uh, never had, uh, you know, uh, uh, there, you know, I've never had an act, act, an actual engine failure. I, I've had to take an engine back down to idle. Right. Yeah. So that that's it. I was I was real lucky. And just to help the, the viewers when you talk about a chip detector it kind of makes you think about like french fries and stuff but what we're talking about <laughs> chips of metal a magnet is detecting is that right that is that is absolutely correct so basically if you get a chip a light for a chip uh it, it's it's telling you that there is metal or metal shavings coming off of a component and it's attaching to that magnet so it means that you could possibly have a uh, fatigue or failure in a particular system. Right, and the normal normal thing would be to land, presumably, and you know. oh, absolutely, absolutely, and shut down and everything. Um, but I do have a couple of things I did want to show you. Um, mm -hmm. When I retired, uh, the guys gave me this. Wow's up! Is that the thirty yeah. mic, Mike? That's thirty. So Jeez, do not get hit uh, by it, that. Uh, I'm trying to do it. Yeah. Oh, so, look at that! It's got your name on it. Yeah. So they <laughs> put my name on it and everything. So. So, but that's, that's your 30. Yeah. Uh, and then what I did, uh, because I was safety officer and I always had to go down range and, uh, um, 
you know, we'd have to clear the range after aerial gunnery. There was always 30 millimeter shells mm -hmm. left over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I did, uh, a friend of mine and I did this, uh, we made shot glasses out of it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, you know, they're just, yeah. you know, uh, so we did, we, you know, drilled out primers yeah. and, uh, uh, bleached them and put some, uh, coatings on them and everything. Mm -hmm. And so I've got, I've got these shot glasses. And uh, probably the other thing I wanted to show is I don't know um, uh, if if y'all know what do you know what flechettes are? I've heard of it. It's something I remember like it's a type of ammo where it splits off into little horrible bits. That's all I sort of remember. Rockets okay. and stuff. I'm gonna show these to you. Ah, that's it. All right. So these are they're actually nails. Wowza. With a little, you can see a little. Yep. So that's that's what they are. So I've got. So I fired flechettes and, you know, you can collect them out on the, you know, like I said, range when you clear them and everything. But so think about this. Um, I'm trying to get these to where you're, everybody can see them. So, so but these come from a rocket warhead or something. Am I right in saying so that? These were actually fired. These were in the ground at targets when we did aerial gunnery mm -hmm. and I could, I, you know, picked them up. Um, so uh, one one rocket, one flechette rocket has, I think it's 1178 nails. Whoa. So that's one. You fire them in pairs, you know, mm. you're talking to 2,300 2, nails in the wow. air. So what they do, um, it is kind of like a shotgun. Effect, yeah. You know, so they, they explode out outwardly, just like a shotgun and BBs uh, at a certain range. And it just fills the whole area uh with uh nails so um uh you, you don't see these very often but you know i just i had them laying around so i wanted to show you cool yeah because i've always wanted to you, you see pictures in like with, with the warhead all together but you can't see what it's like with them all yeah, apart so, so so yeah that's it mm, right there do not want to be on the bad end of that if i'm honest absolutely absolutely so right okay that's that i'm just reading uh stuff that you can't see this but i'm just uh, rather regarding the have donut question we have a video here from Mark Felton on when uh, the US, I'm going to say stole, well, yes, stole, actually, a uh, hind helicopter. So I think that's quite interesting. Very oh, good. Okay. Um, yeah. That's that. Um, I'm just about out of time. I've been a couple of hours here. First of all, thank you very much for uh, for your time, for giving up, up a couple of hours and reviewing the questions and stuff like that. That's great. It was my pleasure, my pleasure. I get the feeling that I'm, I'm, I'm obviously get on quite well with you by the sounds of it, and so, and you're obviously coming into DCS now, so I get the feeling we'll be talking again in the future for whatever that is. Um, maybe yeah, when yeah. maybe when we get closer to the release of the simulated version. We're doing this for another aeroplane as well, the Typhoon. Maybe we'll have you on again for questions more specific to what we're sure. going to get in the sim. And you'll be more clued up as well then. Yeah, you, yeah, you know absolutely. I mean? uh, so I, I, all I'll say uh, about this is what I've seen so far, I'm, I'm really impressed. They're doing a great job. Yeah, everything they do, the ED guys, they, always, all their planes are top-notch, not, not just saying that. Yeah, they, they're they're yeah. doing a really good job, so... Great. Well, thank you very much Thanks for that. that. I'm going to put that together and I will speak to you at some point in the future. All right, man. All Cheers. Right. Ta-ra. Bye.